Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So dredge up those third thoughts, don't forget to tell the bees, and join us on our journey through a hatful of sky and the complete discography. Good evening, and welcome to the complete discography. The uh, book we're talking about tonight is A Hatful of Sky, the 32nd book in the Discworld series, the second in the Tiffany Aching series, and slightly out of order because the Time Monks needed some time this summer, um, and we're, we're shuffling things around a bit. Um, this is a podcast that we're going to be releasing in conjunction with the World Builders campaign, which we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, but first, let's do our silly podcast titles. Anna, you want to lead us off? Sure. Uh, I'm Anna, and I'm currently perfecting my recipe for scorpion sandwiches. I am Justin, and my second body is back in the living room playing the new Stellaris update while this one records the podcast. I'm Aaron, or at least 5% of me is. The rest is a big pink balloon that goes gloop. And I am Neil Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> No, wait, 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 let me do let me do that again. Uh, my name's Lin Manuel Miranda, um, everyone's favorite best friend and good boy. No, see, I uh, I can't even do a fake one bad. Uh, you can leave all that in. I'll be either one of those people or myself if I have to be. <laughs> I feel like Neil Gaiman is, yeah, is very appropriate. Pop, the Neil Gaiman yeah. will pop me hard. And that fourth voice you heard tonight was one that you probably recognize because it is exceedingly distinctive. We have tonight as our guest, Pat Rothfuss. <laughs> uh, it, thank you. It's nice. I don't take compliments easily or well, but I am aware that I have a nice voice and I'm, I am happy when people like my voice. Yeah. So uh, for, for the very small percentage of people in uh, the nerd uh, sphere who don't know you. Um, who are you? Who are I? Um, I jokingly, my my elevator pitch bio, I can't remember when I said it as a joke or I misspoke and I'm like, God, that's too good. I, I introduced myself as two-time author Patrick Rothfuss. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. That You should laugh. It is supposed <laughs> to be a terrible, funny joke. But it's it's not a bad intro. It sounds more legitimate than it is. I uh, I write fantasy novels sometimes. I do role playing stuff. I'm a mental health advocate. Although, you know, I, I guess yeah, I, sh I shouldn't just focus this on what I do sort of as a career. Um, I like to try to make the world a better place. I think I try to educate and I try to help people. And I try to do weird, fun things in the world with wildly varying degrees of success lately. I mean, everything's been a little bit of a challenge lately. Right. I have to say, two-time puts it a little low, because <laughs> Slow Regard of Silent Things is probably one of my favorite books. It's so gorgeous. You uh, you warm my bitter old heart. You know what I did? I, I on a lark, because uh, I read to my boys at night, and... We had just wrapped uh, a very good book, which I very much enjoyed, but 
it got a it might have been Anne McGaffrey's Dragon Singer, which is a good read, and we got to talk about sexism. It was great, and but it wasn't meant to be read out loud. And then I'm like, afterwards, on a lark, I'm like, you know, I wrote this. Would you like to hear part of it? Because I wrote that, and I did the audiobook too. And so I I started to read it to my boys, and I'm like, right, everything like this does. First off, I wrote it, so it's already in my bones. And then I read it and the boys were like, we're into it. And I'm like, and I was kind of into it too. Cause unlike my other books, I haven't, I've only read it like 80 or 90 times instead of a, a thousand, you know, or 2000. <laughs> and so it was kind of fresh and interesting and new. And I got to read it to the boys and see their reaction. Uh, I, I'm proud of Slow Regard. That was a, 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 a strange, beautiful thing. Uh, I'm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also, uh, you are a very, very present uh, in the community of the World Builders charity. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, both broadly and what we can expect uh, during this uh, this summer campaign? That's right. Uh, World Builders is a charity I started on accident on my blog about ten years ago. Um, remember blogs? Uh, remember ten years ago? Remember when the the Maybe earth 2000? was was green and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I had been published about a year. So actually it's closer to 12 years. I've been published about a year and my paperback was coming out and I'm like, Hey everyone want to take a picture of yourself with my book. And if you do, I like, I don't know, I'll give away prizes or something, email them to me. And I did that. And I'm thinking like, if nobody does this, I'll fake up a couple just so I can put them on the blog and I don't look like an idiot. And thousands of pictures came in and it was such a hoot and like people got naked and people painted their bodies and people made paper dolls and climbed onto roofs and cosplayed and i'm like and what somebody shot my book into space you know like needed like it was wild and i'm like this is amazing and I'm like what a fun thing to do with the community and then i got lucky because i was immediately thinking what other cool weird thing can i do and simultaneously, I was listening to NPR, and they say, hey, we're doing a fundraiser. Do you want to do that? And I remember thinking, oh, man, if only I had the money. And I'm like, oh, wait, I got published. I, I have money. Like, I'm not drowning in credit card debt anymore. And so I pulled over to the side of the road. And I called in. I made it. And I'm like, what a good – I did it. I put money into a thing. What a good feeling. Those two things happened right on top of each other. And then I'm like – Maybe instead of just doing a thing where I'm sort of like pandering to my own ego on the blog and we're doing book things, what if I saw if my people's enthusiasm would carry forward into a charity? So I threw it up and I said, hey, Heifer International is my favorite charity. Anyone want to come do a charity with me? I'll match donations for a month. And to make that story short, I kind of was hoping I'd make $5,000 and double it. And we made like 50 and I went broke, used up every bit of my money. Uh, and I went and then I almost went to jail because when you're an author, they don't take your taxes out like I thought. And so I had no money to pay taxes. And uh, but we made $100,000 and we fed a bunch of hungry kids and it felt like the best I've ever I'd ever felt for years. And so the next year we did it again, but hopefully a little smarter, a little better and again and again and uh, as of now, uh, we've raised 
better than $15 million for charity. We have our big end of year shindig where we do raise money primarily for Heifer International, but we've done hurricane relief. We helped Puerto Rico, um, earthquakes, refugees, literacy projects. We do a bunch of other stuff, but what we're doing now with our, I think of as the mid-season fundraiser, the Geeks Doing Good, I, I learned the technical term 10 years in, it's called a capacity fundraiser. And it's where you raise money so that your people get to eat, like because you should employ people and pay them for their services. So this is the fundraiser World Builders does so we can pay keep the lights on and pay the rent. And we do accept donations, but mostly we're selling cool stuff. Like there's a bunch of merch from My World, Jim Butcher, Holly Black, Mary Robinette Kowal. You know, we make t-shirts for people, but also we do it so that the communities out there, there are some authors who have amazing fan bases that are smaller, but if they want to do a t-shirt, they've got to spend the next three months with their living room full of bubble mailers. So we're like, hey, let us send those out and you get a revenue stream, which you could use, and your fans get t-shirts and the extra money goes to us and to the artists that we pay. And then we use the extra to do charity in the world. So right now, we also use this time to sort of test out partnerships and do some experimental products or try out a t-shirt to see if people are going to like it. And uh, it lasts about a week. And it's a good time. And there's some wild stuff. And we're playing games on my Twitch stream. And you can swing on by. It uh, Odds are, if you're into geek stuff, you'll probably see a geek thing that is interesting to you. Awesome. Yeah, I've I've participated in in previous years uh and definitely have at least one uh Illamat related uh handkerchief in my house. Yep. I have the I have the se- I have the the seasons one. That that's actually replaced my standard board. Uh, wow. Yeah, we uh we sometimes have, we've done some tax stuff. We do signed books like for uh you know, Matt Fraction or Kelly Sue McConnick. We've got a new mug coming out. We do like there's a local place around us here in Wisconsin that does these beautiful hand-thrown pottery mugs. So we're making one of those set in my world uh, in Anchors Inn. Uh, so yeah, just a bunch of bunch of stuff. It also helps us draw attention to the World Builders store where we have hundreds and hundreds of products from different creators and, and cool folks. So Excellent. We will put information in the show notes uh, about how to get there. Uh, because it is a charity that I thoroughly enjoy supporting. Um, let's see. I guess we should actually talk about the book at some point well, tonight. And um, don't forget to ask Pat about how he got into Discworld. See, I have a document and I ignore it. How? So, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do actually remember a lot of them I might not have because I would have had to go back and it would have just all blurred together in Walden books in the mall. So if you remember that, congratulations, you're old like me. <laughs> but this one, I was in a Shopco, which if you were in the Midwest, Shopco was like a Kmart, except now Shopco is for real gone away. But it was, they had a book aisle and I saw Sorcery. And I picked it up and something I normally don't do, because if I wanted a book, I went to Walden's where I had my Otherworlders Club discount card and they knew my name at that Walden's. <laughs> and that's where I spent all my money. But my mom was doing some shopping and I'm like, this one seems weird. 
and cool. And I read a couple of pages. I'm like, this is kind of funny. And so I read Sorcery and then slowly started through there. That would have been, er, no, no, it would have been before then. It would have been in the late 80s. So there were not many out then. So that yeah. that one was probably newish. So I read them kind of in order just because there was there was it would have been hard to do it otherwise. So yeah, I probably pretty much in order. It's one of the series that I actually did make an effort like I would find the books when they came out. Um even all through college, um which I fell off a lot of my old series in college, but yeah, that's how I, that's how I came to it. Do you have any that are a particular comfort read for you? <sighs> I it, Honestly, all of Discworld, it used to be when it got to be, when it was just too much, I would read a couple Terry Pratchett novels. If I was going to pick, like, favorites hard, but, like, top three is probably Thud. I I love Monstrous Regiment, even though you can't start somebody there. You know, that's Mm -hmm. not a good place to start the series. Yeah, and Tiffany Aching and Guards Guards. There, that's my top four, three, <laughs> four, three. Um, but yeah, there, it's just so I still haven't read the last one. I can't bring myself jo- to join the club, man. Really? Yeah. yeah. So that's, the the entire premise of this podcast, uh, there's two. One is that Justin, this is their first time reading through. Wow. I am somebody who when I tackle a project, I have to go all the way through with it. Oh yeah. And Discworld is one of those things where you get the charts of where to enter. Oh, and, God. and it was just like, and, and I'm like, this is way too overwhelming. And so then we ended up doing this. <laughs> I, I will say it's weird. My two favorite series, and, and this is one of them are the, because I am a, Hey, you, do you want to read that? You start at the beginning. And then you read every bit of it and then you get to the end and then you can stop. Thank you very much. And you do not do it out of order. And I don't care what somebody tells you or what chart you found. The author, oh, don't get me started about Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Because there's a right order and it's not the current order that they put those books in. But I will recommend for Discworld, like, absolutely don't start at the beginning, which, you know, it, which is wild but it it is a barrier to entry that's a bit of a shame. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, yeah, where yeah. would your recommended starting point be for somebody new to the disc? I t- I tailor it a little bit based on what I know about the person. Starting with sorcery is not a bad place to start. The main thing is you gotta skip those first two, and they I know what they're doing, and they are fine for what they do, but they are merely okay. Which And it's hard to write an okay book. Most everything else Terry wrote was great, was was merely great, as opposed to the vast majority of Discworld, which is truly excellent, you know? Yeah. Like, like, like nothing better than, some things as good as, but there, there's nobody better than him. Yeah. We actually have a new low, if you don't have a m- much of an idea of what the other person likes, a uh, new starting recommendation, which is amazing, Maurice. And you know that that is a good taste of what he does, and you don't need context. Yeah, exactly. Chapters. Yeah. Oh, that's right. They don't have chapters. I had somebody point that out to me that it that it, they didn't, and I'm like, mm-hmm. never noticed. Never noticed. <laughs> never cared. <laughs> so, and then the the second premise of of the show is that neither Anna nor I have, in fact, read the last book, and we are forcing ourselves. <sighs> too finally 
That's so rough. it's entirely a support group for us. Wow. <laughs> wow. 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 I met Terry. Did you know? I'll save that for later. We should probably get into the questions, no, right? No, no, that this is this is where we talk about that is, kind of is stuff. That, I, I I met him I met him once and this was you know, he had been diagnosed and there was the disc con that I found out was happening in Madison, which is kind of it's close to where I grew up in Wisconsin. It was the the big convention and they were doing it in Madison and Terry had agreed to come. He had been diagnosed and he was pretty good, but everyone was still sort of mourning, but he was functional and he would talk. It was a neat con because I I go to writing cons like world con or media cons or, or whatever, but this was the first sort of like to celebrate a particular author's work that's a little it's it's a different feel. Mm-hmm. There are two things. The first was because they were being very respectful and careful of Terry. Like if you if you were there, I don't even think everyone who came could get a book signed. I think they did a lottery. But because I had agreed to come sort of as a not a guest of honor, but like I was a guest and I was on a couple of panels and they're like, we can get you in for a book, you know? And I'm like, okay. And then, then that's a choice, right? What is, what am I going to get Terry to sign? And I, I got him to sign my copy of nation. Good Paul. Right. And cause I loved nation and I went up and, and I'm like, God, I want to talk to you as much as I've ever wanted to talk to anyone in the world, but you don't. That's, I mean, mm-mm, don't, don't. I, and like have, having been on the other side of the table and, and in good health, and I could, and honestly, I've done 12, 14 hour signings and I'll talk to anybody. It's fun. I like it, even though it leaves me pounded flat afterwards. But like, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to get my book signed. I'll have been close to him. But the gift I am giving him is not being a pain in the ass. And that's, that's the only thing that I can give him that I know he will appreciate. <laughs> so they, they, they sort of ease me in and he goes, oh, he goes, I don't see this one so much. And I said, it was the most beautiful book. And he said, he said, a lot of people didn't like the ending. And I said, how could they not? It was the perfect. How could you not end it like that? It was perfect. And he said, it's, it's the ending that it needed. And, and I'm like, I go, that's exactly the ending it needed. It couldn't have been a different. I go, you you want a different ending, but that doesn't mean you should have that ending. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I had I had that. He didn't know that I was an author. He didn't know whatever. Uh, but it was that was nice. I had I had a tiny, a tiny back and forth. And so he was gracious, gracious and kind, down in his bones. And then afterwards, uh Neil swung by. Because Neil, at that point, lived pretty close to Madison, and they were friends from way back. And Neil came in, and Terry had his, I don't know, what they sometimes call a keynote or a Q&A or whatever. But what it really was is, or like an interview. And so Neil went up and just chatted with him, and they told stories. And it was like, do you remember when? And it's like, yeah. Do you remember when? Yeah. Or it's like, what about that time? And it was like, it, it was, it was magical because he was, he was remembering these stories and these are friends. And I, they, they've had, they had some 
rocky times. They, you know, they, they had a few rough bits and I don't know how much that is in like the public knowledge. I've heard people kind of talk behind the scenes of, Ooh, but they were up there and it was, they were friends in the way that probably you can only be good friends with somebody that you have known and maybe had some rough times with. And then you realize that only some people know you from back then. And if you don't talk to the people you have a rough time with, then nobody will know who you used to be. Mm -hmm. And, and Terry told this story and he's like, I remember because, and then they talked about good omens and they talked about, like trying to get it into a movie and trying to get it sold and nobody would buy it and all of these. And they were, it was so fun because it's great to hear these Titans like kvetching about not being able to get published, which is so (laughs) relatable. And then they're so worried about like, and it's like, so Neil, they tell a story where Neil is going to visit Terry and Terry is like shacked up in some little shed like a little a little cottage somewhere in Southamptonshire you know like uh Stiver on bloat you know like this tiny non-existent fictional sounding English uh <laughs> in English town but Neil has driven all night to get there in some rundown car and but there's no place for him so he is sleeping in the attached barn and so he sleeps and finally it's it's like noon because he was driving all night and Terry he's like we go out and he's in in the barn and like like they're like in their 20s they're like you know <laughs> the the perfect age where it's like you're indestructible you're still immortal then <laughs> and so it you're like fine I'll sleep in the barn you know I remember sleeping on concrete with a towel just because how dare you offer me a couch I don't care <laughs> But he told the story. He's like, we went in and I woke you up and it was in sort of this converted barn. But up above, um, some of the windows had broken. And so um, pigeons had gotten in. And so, and also it was daytime out. So the light was spearing down into this utterly dark space, this bright sunlight spearing down through these broken windows. And Terry opens the door and there's Neil waking up, but he he opens the door and these pigeons, which means effectively doves, are startled and they explode into flight. And then there's an, an array of dust motes in the beam of light that is piercing the darkness. And there in the middle of it all is Neil Gaiman. And he's like, and Terry said it in a way that, you know, through all of this, he would sometimes get a little vague or sometimes lose his thread, which I mean, how I do that. Right. But Mm -hmm. we were all so, so aware of it. It was so easy to see maybe even though it was just something everyone does when they pause to talk, but he's telling this story and he's like, and, and I'm paraphrasing here. This is true to the spirit, not what he actually said, (laughs) But he's like, he did this, and he's like, I see this, and there's this whatever. And he goes, you're wearing your your fucking leather jacket, and the <laughs> sun is coming down, and there's doves exploding around you, and you're well lit. And he's like, it's like this fucking posh, sexy bastard, like you always and and it was it was the way it was the way he said it. It's the way that your friends 
are like are like god damn it you always got the girl back then it's like ugh, it's just mm-hmm. ugh, you always you always had a better car than me it's like oh you always got and it was just such a beautiful sweet story where like only your friends can be like non-maliciously salty about the fact that (laughs) how dare you keep looking good you just slept in a barn all night (laughs) you know uh uh it was it was so yeah I, i i got to see him a little bit and it was it was a treat it was a treat this sounds wonderful we should probably move on to the book at some point yeah i'm 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 here for it so um i'm going to quickly read uh synopsis uh but like a lot of these later books, listeners, I'm going to skip over a lot. You should read the darn book. We return briefly to the chalk, the rolling lowlands of the disc, covered in herds of sheep and clouds. Tiffany Aching, now 11 years old, is being apprenticed to a witch further up the mountains. Of course, witches are still broadly forbidden in uh, the lowlands, so her socially acceptable cover story is that she's going up to be a maid for a while, which is pretty common in the area. She visits the Feagles before she leaves getting a chilly reception from the new Kelda and worried looks from the boys, and then heads off into the mountains, accompanied by Miss Tick. Unbeknownst to her, but spotted by the Feagles silently escorting her, she's being chased by something. Something from before time. Something that even a Knack McFeagle can kill. Tiffany and Miss Tick are met halfway by Miss Lovell, Tiffany's host and supervisor, who will take her the rest of the way via broomstick. The adults move away for a conversation, and Tiffany uses a trick she's been developing by herself to spy on them. Unfortunately for her, while she's out of her body, her pursuer, the Hiver, takes residence. In this first encounter, Tiffany is able to evict it before it takes root, but the two adult witches are terrified. Witching, in a series of disappointments to Tiffany, is not casting spells or dancing in the moonlight. It is work, hard, both physically and emotionally. Taking care of babies, the sick, the elderly, and making sure that the social contract is upheld and facilitated. Tiffany is also introduced to a coven of young witches in training, led by the rather bossy anagramma, who leads the charge in ostracizing the newcomer, even calling into into question the invisible hat that Mistress Weatherwax gave her in the last book. At home, Tiffany attempts the see-me trick again to see if she can find the now-missing hat, and the hive returns and stays. It is insidious, taking over parts of her piece by piece until it is a fairly accurate simulacrum of Tiffany, except unafraid to use the full extent of her magic and unbound by Tiffany's conscience. Meanwhile, back at the mound, Rob Anybody is pining and fretting, this is a problem for Jeannie, the new Kelda, who eventually determines that the best thing for her clan is to have a hag around, and sends Rob and his cohort on a suicide mission, the only kind of Fiegel would agree to, to save Tiffany from the Hiver. They make a mecha suit out of stolen clothes and a stolen beard, ugh, and head offski. Hiver Tiffany, in the meantime, has been causing chaos and havoc, and even kills one of Miss Lovell's bodies, which we'll get into that later. Um, Granny Weatherwax arrives and gets to Weatherwaxing, and we get to see Granny at her fullest capacity. After they evict the Hiver once more with the help of the Feagles, they work on a plan to stop the threat once and for all. At the witch trials, a sort of country fair event, the Hiver returns once more. This time, Tiffany learns the most important job of a witch, helping someone across the final threshold. Death, a lot scarier than usual, perhaps because of whose eyes we're seeing him through, um, makes a cameo. And the Hiver is gently helped off across the dark desert, while Tiffany is pulled back at the last second by Granny. Tiffany refuses to participate in the witch trials, standing apart like Mistress Weatherwax, as she has learned a very grown-up lesson. It's more important to know yourself than to be known. 
Later, she returns the chalk to help with lambing season, wearing the ostentatious hat she bought as Hiver Tiffany, and putting on the show that witches do to demonstrate to others how to treat each other. But it is not her hat, nor is the hat offered by Granny Weatherwax. We end the book as she takes the place of her grandmother on the chalk, cloaked by her hills and wearing the hat she has made for herself, a hat full of sky. I like this book. Yeah. The Tiffany books. The Tiffany books. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh. So, Justin, your first read through, uh, what were what were your broad impressions? Um, well, overall, I've got to say that I really enjoyed this one. The it's got a feeling of like a lot of books that I've read before, but I cannot specifically place any of them of like various apprentice stories of like various magical like apprentice stories. But it, there's it's combining that like little subgenre with Terry doing a lot of work on what witching actually is, which is a lot of fun. Um, the Hiver is a very interesting antagonist. I don't want to call it a villain because I, I, I think by the end of it, it's not malicious. It's just, it doesn't yeah. see things the right way or it doesn't see the way things we do. It's, it's surviving. Yeah. And the way it, the way that all, all ends up being resolved, I thought was, it's a fun twist or like a fun twist on that formula. My admission that I made in the last Tiffany book and I'll make it again here is that I skipped the Tiffany books the first time around and I feel guilty about that. Um, and I read them for the first time seven or eight years ago. Uh, well, I mean the ones that were out seven or eight years ago and you know, the, it's just then reading, a, reading it again. Now that I have an 11 year old daughter, is um yeah i i don't know how an old white british guy can <laughs> write an 11 year old so well yeah i read the tiffany books mostly as they were coming out but i didn't really engage with them as much because i would have been in i think my early 20s or so and I'm I'm definitely like engaging with them more and I I'm liking them a lot more in this round and kind of seeing them you know better with a little bit of a little bit more distance and from the age thing. Weirdly, I remember the the piece with Tiffany being under the hiver's control as like a third of the book. Mm. <laughs> and it's not. Um it's actually pretty like page wise. It's a pretty small fraction, but but somehow I remembered it as being a huge fraction of the novel. It it looms really large in in yeah. Uh, what I remember oddly, and and this probably says a lot about me as a reader or or whatever, but I remember primarily the the training. Like the 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 interactions, which is probably page wise the lion's share of the book, mm-hmm. yeah. But most people probably wouldn't consider plot critical. Mm-hmm. But you know, like her helping out the old man, you yeah. know, yeah. who's like, and 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 again, like what 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 a beautiful, bizarre, true picture of the way that sometimes a person gets old, which is 
they're, they have the one thing they're worried about. And, and I, I, I'm assuming we're, we're sort of, this is spoiler full instead of spoiler free where, you know, he, you know, he's like, he's always like, is my money still there? Is my money still safe? Boy, I wish I knew when I read this the first time. It was before I had kids. I know that. Um, and I did love it. But what I remember that little interaction, it struck really true because like both of my parents, when they were sick, they didn't get to be like daughtery old, but they were really concerned about like they planned their funerals, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, you know, and, and what he said was so true to to especially i live in wisconsin which small town wisconsin is probably pretty close to the ram tops you know where yeah. you take care of your own you take care of your own business you are self-sufficient you do not ask for favors um and the fact that he's like i won't be a burden to anyone i'm not going to be any trouble when i go i'm just gonna go and this i've got this all squared away and i'm like woof what a what a wild thing that is something that only an intuitively brilliant writer would include. He, he did not say, what does this book need? An old guy who's worried about dying. That's something that arises as you write and you leave in because it, it was important. Mm-hmm. And, and on the flip side with the same character, you know, we're, we're also shown what a difference financial security makes in somebody's mental health. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, everything, everything, you know, Tiffany, Tiffany might have, you know, stolen and spent his money. Yeah. But the Fiegels returned it and then some and, you know, having having those additional resources gives him the ability to essentially live again and get get a fresh lease on life. And, you know, get married and and all of those things and it pulls him out of this like anxiety and depression yeah which is quite lovely oh yeah and i i think that's something i think a lot about socially in terms of like you know what to be like and and again this isn't me shilling for the charity but the reason i work with i i i do world builders and we work with ever international is like there's a lot of great things people can do, but you can't do them if you're hungry or if you're constantly worried about where your next meal is coming from. So food security is such a vital thing. It, it's not just teach a person to fish. It's like you have to a lot of times give them a fishing pole or more importantly, teach them how to make a fishing pole and then provide them the resources for making a fishing pond and uh-huh. then and then they're okay and then their kids go to school that's like invariably this is what happens when people if they become successful the first thing they do is solidify their stability and then they always send their kids to school because that is the benefit of luxury and this guy had worked so hard to set aside what was essential, which is not being a bother. But if he had luxury, if he had more than what was merely needful, then 
then he was going to go romance and the widow, you know, <laughs> like, and yeah. I'm like, how yeah. that's the world we should live in. Yes. First, everybody gets what is essential so that then we can do what is luxurious. And that's, that's joy. The, the other thing, you know, speaking sort of tangentially off of the, the gold bit, um, the other thing that I noticed on this reread is just how good, you know, this is classified broadly as a middle grades book, but Terry is so good at telling you what he's going to do and then doing it. And you're still surprised. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because early on they set up, oh yeah, the Fiegels are like, yeah, gold's pretty. It makes the, it makes the, <laughs> the room look nice. And then yeah. the Fiegels do the thing with the gold. And, you know, it's just, well, I mean, they, they do it three times, actually. I want to talk about rule of three in a second, but it's just so, it must be so satisfying as a, you know, that age group of a reader. And I, I definitely find that my daughter loves these books. Uh, I've only read her, let her read the first three because the fourth one gets heavy. But, you know, it must be so satisfying as, as a reader in that age group to like have a sense of what's coming and then have those expectations met and, you know, more than met. Yeah. I also have to say it just talking about the, the Fiegels replacing that stolen money and, you know, and in some ways the way that it's handled, because it typically your, your pro, you know, protagonists got a protag and if they don't, you don't got a good book. Mm-hmm. And that means you have to, you know, have challenges or tension and overcome obstacles to, to a certain extent, usually not nearly as much as anyone thinks, but that's a whole different subject. But Tiffany also her in herself, in her character in the world is like, but Tiffany doesn't fix that. The Fiegels fix it. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, it's not a deus ex machina, but it's in that category of this problem is solved, not through strife or strain or problem solving or cleverness or work, this person gets a freebie and Tiffany herself is bothered, (laughs) is bothered by that. And she's like, I, this is my fault. I need to fix it. (laughs) And I love how granny comes back on her (laughs) and she's like, and, and, and she doesn't. And again, this is more true to the spirit than to what, what granny said. And it's like, Oh, so you're you're too too good to accept a favor from your friends is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You 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 want this old man to be miserable until you can fix it for you. I think like there there's one point where she says it's not fair, and then Granny comes back with one of my favorite lines because you can twist you can twist this in so many ways and it works for basically any way you can interpret it. She says, "Of course, life is unfair. That's why you have other people." Oh yeah. my lord! Yeah, yeah. That's like the through line of this yeah, book, right? And, you know, that's that's the point of witches, and I love it. Oh, one other thing about the Fiegels and the gold, though. Yeah, they establish over and over and over again that they're not that kind of fairy, and then they do fairy bullshit. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. They do. Yep. Yep. Um, but only yeah. for Tiffany. But I, the thing is, for me, like for one, I didn't like. I, I I'm like cool Pratchett book. Because when when I read 
I am a garbage disposal. Like you can put anything in there. Like I'm just gonna, you know, and, and these days I, I do get more irritated if a book doesn't do a thing, but a Pratchett book, it's like, nah, come at me. What you got? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I didn't have trouble engaging or, or anything. I was just there for it. And I loved it like out of the gate. I'm like, these are brilliant. Some of his best book. How does he keep writing things and getting better? Also, I'm irritated. How dare you? <laughs> but um, the professional jealousy, the salt monster is is always there. For me, as this person, you know, living in my version of the Ram Tops, the lesson there, which I did not think of in these terms, but thinking of it now, what Granny says is she's like, you let people help you. And if you don't, you're you're fucking up, which again is a wild thing to hear from granny. And it's like, do as I say, not as I do from granny. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> but like, not only should kids learn that lesson, that's an, that's not a lesson for kids. Kids' entire lives are because you cannot survive as a child without help. That's a lesson for me, Pat Rothfuss. It's like, I'll break the world apart to fix anything that I dimly see as a problem for other people. But I will die gasping on a beach, you know, before I let somebody help me or I at, let alone ask for help. So, like, I got to learn that. Um, and so it's it's probably good for me to see that, not just kids. There's another thing along those lines, too, when um, when Tiffany is talking about uh, the friend she makes who's, who's good with animals. Um, and Granny asks whether whether there's a friend of friend of hers and Tiffany replies, or if she is, I don't deserve it. Um, and granny of course says, Hmm, well, sometimes we get what we don't deserve. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I, Which I love that little, that little turn on that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Man, granny. So Pat, you have a tween now, right? Uh, yep. I got an eight year old and a 12. Yeah. I have an 11 year old. So we're, we're roughly on the same page in this transition into adolescence, which I feel like is a, another sort of broad overarching theme in, in this book. Uh, I, I think that like the Hiver is almost a stand in for the intrusive thoughts that an adolescent can have and acting against your own, uh, acting against your own best impulses and things like that. I honestly didn't think of it that way when I read it the the couple of times I've read it before, but thinking of it like here and now, I'm like, oh man, this is, you know, I, cause now I think a lot about like how do kids learn where are they at in their lives? Like how is all of this, this going and, you know, and learning to come to grips with like at this point in your life, I mean, there's so much. There's so like at every developmental stage. I remember watching my little kid, and I say, you know, because when they're two, they can understand. When they're one, they can understand you. And and then so at 18 months, I'm like, can you hand me the pencil? And I watch them look at the table that is completely empty, and there is a ball, and a pencil, and a cup. And they look at the cup, and they look at the pencil. And they look at the ball and they look at the ball. They look at the pencil. They look at the cup 
And then they look at the pencil and then they go, (gasps) and they pick up the pencil because that's what you, that's what they were looking for. And you're like, how did you not see it? But there's nothing else there. You obviously know what a pencil is because you identified it. But how could you not do it sooner? It's because they don't have perceptual sculpting yet. They are learning how to see and like, not just what it's called in their head, not just words, but like, it's a wild, like the amount of hard coding they are having to do every minute as children, which is why our job is to keep, like, not actually ask them for too much, you know, and to give them space to do all of that. And, and again, my older boy is sharp, right? My older boy, I don't, I don't know what level he's reading at, but he also, I have noticed now, you know, he's at the point where he's going through a different developmental thing and there's hormones in his body that weren't there before. I don't know. I I think it's not easy boy or girl. Um, or any mix of the two, wherever you are, there's there ain't none of it easy because it is so new. And that 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 boyness, it's like all testosterone really does for you is muscle mass. And what what is it? Somebody explained it to me, a biological, like somebody who really knew the endocrine system. It's like what what men get in terms of cognitive whatever and all of this, like genetically and, and hormonally, we get aggression. And violent aggression. <laughs> and those, that's the only two perks you get as a dude. And I'm like, that sucks. But also look at the world and helping him get a f- groundwork and a foundation so that when, when these storms hit, hopefully those waters can not wash away everything that was built before. It can kind of feed off somewhere and, and, and he can still stay himself. And hell, sometimes my emotions get out of control and I'm like, why am I doing this? This is the wrong thing. I came into this conversation specifically not wanting to talk about the thing that I'm talking about right now while I'm thinking this in my head. Oh, no, I'm doing it wrong. Oh, yeah, it's such a good example of that. Or like half my parenting conversations, too. (laughs) Yep. Why am I saying this to you? I know this is going to dig both of us into a deeper hole. <laughs> no screen time. Wait, no. Wait, hold on. <laughs> I think we've touched on how much of this book has, you know, the themes of like responsibility and service. Um and in particular like uh service being giving people what they actually need and not what you think that they need. And I think one of the one of the things that stands out to me is, you know, along with that intrusive thoughts thing, like the the kind of coming to terms with the darker parts of your mind and personality, like that you I wouldn't necessarily classify them as like intrusive thoughts, but like you know the uncharitable things that you think about other people or whatever, and like being able to kind of set aside that piece of your brain and be like, that's, you know, that's not nice. Mm -hmm. Um, It might not, it might not be wrong (laughs) sometimes, Um, but being able to like filter through, you know, the various, the various portions of your thoughts, because that's one of the things that really disturbs Tiffany is that the Hiver isn't just 
using her body and going to town with it and whatever, that the Hiver is expressing the thoughts that she has about other people, which, you know, everything about Tiffany is about thoughts, you know, first thoughts, second thoughts, third thoughts, and, and having, you know, the Hiver actually express all the things that she's kind of secretly thinking about other people out loud um, and seeing the reaction of other people to that. And I think, you know, that's also part of growing up is to be able to partition those pieces of your brain. And I know that I'm a hell of a lot better at it now than I was when I was like 20 even. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole social contract aspect that the witches kind of facilitate is, is really interesting. Like, you know, who are, do we have people like that in our, in our world? Are there people literally in- every woman ever? Yeah. Like, I mean, well, I, I read an article that said other countries have, have social safety nets. America has women. Yeah. And I'm like, yep, guess, Hey, every woman ever do a free emotional labor for every man in your life. And I think of the women in church when I was growing up, they made that work. They may not have been on the committees, but everyone got a funeral, you know, and, and the women made it happen quietly in the background all the time. I, I think of, I think of that little Burke Lutheran church, this tiny little church in a tiny little town. And, and they're, they're all shades of granny and nanny and Magrat, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, but absolutely keeping grease on the wheels of the world. Uh, it's, it's not how it should be, but it's better than it not being there. Um, yeah. And just broadly anybody who's doing mutual aid, mm-hmm. that the, the witches are essentially mutual aid. Yeah. When you say, uh, you, you, I don't know if I've ever heard that term mutual aid. Um, or I guess mutual aid or direct aid, but like the, the idea of people within the community, like directly helping each other with money or organization. Right. You know, like, like the, you know, one example would be say, you know, local abortion funds. Right. Where this is, you know, somebody local who's organizing this thing and helping people in the community in, in a way that's not as hierarchical as, um, some charities tend to be, or probably as, uh, am I correct in assuming like not as strictly transactional? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that real communities had to exist, otherwise, if people die, like you know, like in the long winter, you do check in on the neighbors because if someone gets sick, they will die. Yeah, you, the the whole thing where where. Miss Lovell is discussing uh, with Tiffany all of the ways that they're they are in fact compensated, and Tiffany's like, "That's way more food than I've seen in your cottage. What do you do with all of it?" She's like, "Store it like, yeah. where <laughs> in other people where it's needed." You know, yeah, right. it's it's kind of a callback to that scene in in Night Watch when Reg Shu is trying to put everything in the uh, in the warehouse, and everybody else is like, "No, we're going to feed people because people need to be fed." Yeah. yeah. Do you have any? Do you have any? themes tropes etc that you want to call out justin we have my of course life is unfair um the other mm-hmm. the other like passage and like the thing um is that you have to know how to be a human being before you know how to be a witch <laughs> that one's really and good. like the, yeah. the end the end scene that end scene where 
uh, Granny. I was going to say Nanny Og, and I don't know why. Um, <laughs> I'm like, she's not even, she's like, she's mentioned this book. I don't know. Uh, uh, but Granny Weatherwax is like, yeah, you want to be a witch? Take that, take the little silver horse, throw it down the well. And it's, and like, <laughs> and she's like, no, I, I can't and like can or won't both. And I think it's, it's, Especially in something like how witchcraft is depicted as that community anchor. Um, it's important to be able to step back and that, like, say, are my needs being met as a human being as well? You know, so because I can imagine that uh, ill prepared witches burn out very quickly. <laughs> they get to cackling pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, it's like it's a very important thing of you got to you, you got to take care of yourself. You've got to be human. You've got to have the things that you are attached to. Otherwise, we're gonna have you know, we're gonna we're gonna go back to the Disneyland and uh, uh, which is abroad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The thing that I find fascinating about this is that Granny talks to Tiffany about herself and about witching way more than she talks to Nanny or McGrath or Agnes, mm-hmm. which I mean, part of that is the the context of the book, but part of that is, I think really feels like Terry being like, okay, no, this is who granny is. And this is why this is important. I think you see granny in this book in some ways, like way more than you've than it's certainly way different than you've seen her before. Mm-hmm. Isn't this the first book where you see her stagger? Walking no, up the no. in Carpet Jugulum, she yeah. does. Okay, okay, but but I think in this one, she's going up the mountain with Tiffany, right? And yes. she's she needs a minute, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And Tiffany's like, Tiff, Tiffany, there is absolutely the stand-in for us because, like. You know Granny at this point. Granny is the stone at the heart of the world. You know, uh-huh. Granny is the fulcrum. She is the place you stand if you want to move the world. But also she is the lever. You know, like nothing, nothing can beat Granny. But Tiffany sees that. And uh, that's, I don't know. I, I. I don't I don't even know how I feel about that except that to me feels that feels like such a big part of the book even though I know it's not mm-hmm. because well and also Granny's struggle against uh anagrammata which is such a freaking teen girl name to pick for yourself <laughs> right like that's that's every bit like I'm Raven Dark Shadow you know like ana- <laughs> like dang that's spot on and 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 granny's an old woman you know and it's like yeah i'm going to i'm going to win but i'm going to win just through sheer cussedness not because i can't lose you know uh, it's it, it's th- these books are always about granny to me it's always about vimes or it's always about granny it's these characters i just yeah and yeah. i don't know it feels to me like granny is with that comment, you know, where she does, she is exposed as having, uh, having a weakness. It feels to me like Terry is telling us that granny is not 
perpetual and also that granny sees tiffany potentially as her replacement absolutely uh i was i was going to say exactly that that i think part of granny's relationship with tiffany and how she she interacts with tiffany in many ways much more as an equal than she does with any of the other witches repeatedly yeah and i think that's because she sees tiffany as you know the next her and i think also partly she wants to keep tiffany from making the mistakes that she's made because mm-hmm. granny's not a nice person <laughs> in a lot of ways and granny's not happy yeah Absolutely. And Granny doesn't take care of herself. Granny takes care of the world, and the world needs her. But nobody nobody knows what Granny needs, and nobody takes care of her. And yeah. it's the worst thing that – it's the worst thing. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, she, she, the, she says to Tiffany at one point, tomorrow your job is to change the world into a better place. Today my job is to see that everyone gets there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, it was like I, I had like a, a little bit of a starky remark of like we don't learn about Gr- Granny as much as like in other books because we don't need to. But mm-hmm. really, Nanny, like Nanny Alton and Magrat don't need to know about Granny. But Gr- but Granny's like, I can I can do something here that like, you know, if I if I can have one honest conversation and, you know, really teach somebody, I can you know, she says she's trying to make tomorrow, but she is also trying to make sure that, in a way, Tiffany is a better granny than granny. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a, yeah. A, a kinder, more empathetic, more, um, more human granny. Mm-hmm. Tiffany's parents, her actual parents, are one short step away from being Charles Schultz adults. Like, do we ever see them? Like, I, I, I don't remember a damn thing about them, which because she doesn't need, she's good. Tiffany's good, you know, in the same way. And, and in that respect, Tiffany has stuff to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and in that respect, absolutely. You can see the burgeoning weather wax there, but narratively you use the as an author you use this opportunity to show a facet of a character that otherwise you you haven't had a chance to show off or you haven't had a situation where you can so that's just deeds must where the devil drives that's just the craft you know but psychologically what is is it easier to tell a stranger some secret shit or your friend that you've known forever that's true We've yeah. all had those late night conversations. You meet some people and suddenly it's three in the morning and you're up all night and you're sitting by the edge of the water and you these <laughs> you know these people and you've shared with these people more than some people who you've known for years, right? Because there's an opportunity because Nanny knows Granny all the way through her and out the other side. But, and that is important because you need people who know who you are. That's important. I, I, you know, and I, I say that as somebody who, who has no more friends like that. Um, and, and that's not a resource you can ever 
recapture or or suddenly say, oh, wait, do over. I want I want to make that. But the problem there is you are trapped in yourself. You you must be what you are perceived to be. The man, the philosopher said that that was uh, let me see. That was SAS per Kippy to be is to be perceived. And therefore, you cannot be anything other than what you're, I mean, hell, anyone grow up in a small town, anybody still in, like you ever go back to where you were in high school and they still make fun of you for that time. You shit your pants in the third grade on the trip to the zoo. Nobody forgets, right? You're that person forever, except 60 years. And it's the, your colleague, cause you work with nanny and there's no friend like that. And that's invaluable but you cannot be anything other than that person who she knows you to be around her. Not because you don't want to be, not because she won't let you be, but because you are, you, 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 you lock yourselves into that dynamic. And when you meet somebody new, you get the chance to be a new person and be a different version of yourself. And so psychologically, it makes way better sense that you could tell this young kid more than you could tell your best friend um, because they aren't judging you in the same way. And they, you don't have to overcome that, 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 knowledge. Um, but, and also what's interesting for me is granny is more apparent to Tiffany in many ways, or at least is the sort of parent that I am. Cause I look at these boys and I want to give them so many cool, th- I want to tell them cool things and show them cool things. And there's some things I got to tell. I mean, man, I had to say, so, Hey, there's a thing called abortion. And I wasn't getting ready to talk to you about that yet, but there's some stuff going on. So I got to tell you about this. So we got to first learn about this so that I can talk to you about kind of a shitty thing that's going on in the world right now. And it had to bring him up to speed. Those aren't fun. He didn't want to have that conversation. I didn't want to have that, but sometimes you don't want to eat your broccoli. You gotta, you gotta like look these things in the eye or you're doing yourself in the world a disservice. And similarly, my boys, I want them to be better than me. And it's not that I want them to fix the world. That would be great. I want my boys to take better care of themselves than I've taken care of myself. I want them to be, to attend to their own happiness in ways that I had never learned to, because that's, that's what I want. I bet if I went back, I would see more of that now in granny is obviously parenting, but I think granny is parenting but like be a better witch but granny i think is far is even too far gone to be hey love yourself a little and you deserve joy like i don't think granny can understand that she doesn't and she can't that's how and that's what makes granny so sad to me mm-hmm. you know but maybe tiffany can teach her because you know she gives her she gives granny the the ridiculous cloak and granny puts it on that's i mean and that's the dream right and i do learn things from my kids already like stunning things not like oh you reminded me to like flowers or some dumb shit like that it's like my boys actually tell me things and i'm like 
oh my God, you're like, I had no, wow, where did, and, and I, I go, did you hear that somewhere? And sometimes they're like, no. And sometimes they're like, no, dad, you told us that. <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit, that, wow, I give good advice, <laughs> but I'll take it. I just said it, but now I'll do it, you know? So man, yeah, you're right. That cloak, I forgot about that cloak. Mm-hmm. God, bring some joy into your life, Granny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we move on from themes, I really do want to talk about the third wish and the whole repeating of this rule of three thing, then, and third time pays for all. Uh, because the Hiver attacks three times is the whole thing of three, the three, what's the third wish? Uh, and, and Mr. Weevil even asks about his money three times in, in the text. And the third time is when, when the gold is there. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's an interesting pull from, from sort of fantasy novels and, and that kind of lore to, into this book. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not just fantasy. I mean, it, over, over like it's drama at like its most basic mm-hmm. form. It's you, you like you, you, you introduce something, you set precedent and then you either bring it to a conclusion or you subvert it. Mm-hmm. It's, yep. you know, you lay track, lay track, lay track, and you either get to the station or you fall off a cliff. <laughs> yeah, yeah that well said, well said. <laughs> and actually, you know, I, it was speaking of parenting and kids, which I can't help but do because that's who I am now. But <laughs> I, I used to talk about something called baby's first trope. Because uh, you, you've mentioned themes a couple of times. I don't understand theme. <laughs> People talk to me about theme and they're like, well, what are the themes of your book? And I'm like, huh? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, sure. But like trope, trope, I'll, I'll fuck with some trope. Right. (laughs) But so, because trope is just a story shape, you know, Mm -hmm. but what I would do, you have a baby, right. And I'm showing with my hands here, but I'll try to describe this other than with gestures. (laughs) You take a baby and right now I'm holding the baby. Right. And babies like to bounce. And babies, and so you you sort of lift a baby up in the air and you go, one, two, three. Mm-hmm. And and what you do is the three is higher. And the first time you do it, the baby's like, eh? and then you do it again. You go, one, two, three. And the baby's like, eh? and then you do it a couple. And then you go, one, two. And on two, they're like, uh, and you yeah. see them start to light up. And then you go three and they're like, fuck yeah, three. I'm like, <laughs> I'm here for three. And the thing is you do it and they're like, and they're like, bounce me, bounce me. And you go one, two. And here's what happens. Cause you're right. You do one of two things. You get to the station or you fall off a cliff and you either fulfill or subvert, or there's a, there's a wild third option that I, I won't even get into, but you're doing this with a kid. And what you learn as somebody playing with kids, because you, you're doing it, and then at least if you're like me, kind of like born to subvert, <laughs> um, you go one, two, three, four, and they're like, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. This is not – this isn't – no. No, 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 no. This isn't no. what I agreed to. Oh, this, I missed that. I bought, I bought a ticket for three, <laughs> and I'm angry. I'm angry. You made me a promise? <laughs> Why? You know, but but also speaking of like the rule of three, uh, if the three is just, it's 
the three is the first, the only thing that makes a shape. A three makes a circle. Um, a three is a beginning, a middle, and ending. You know, uh, it's the only thing. Without three, you you can't plot a graph or do anything. So it's sort of like the most foundational thing that can form a pattern is three, mm-hmm. in in my opinion. And then it's reflected into science and 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 whatever. But with those kids, you go one, two, and the thing is. I know three, and the longer you've been around, the quicker, more quickly, the more quickly you are like, you know what, Let what, what can we do with three? But the kid is still enjoying three as it was. And this is one of the, the things where Terry's work shines, um, is he is giving something to people who still want three. But he is always giving something to the rest of us who have seen three a thousand times because we've read all these stories and fairy tales and fantasy novels. So he is giving the satisfaction to the people who are new or who just need comfort. But he is also giving the subversion to those of us that are tired or bored. And, and again, it is rare for an artist to be able to thread that needle, let alone as consistently as he does. Um, sorry, I went down a weird rabbit hole there. <laughs> Normally we pull these little things that we call buttons where Terry steps back and smacks us across the face with something that we need to know, like uh, the boots theory. But I feel like we've grabbed all of these. I have one remaining, which is which is the thing, um, the, the thing of how being human is knowing when not to be the monkey or the lizard or any of the other old echoes. That mm-hmm. you know, being human is not not listening to the lizard brain. Yeah. Um, uh, one one that I had was learning how not to do things as as hard as learning how to do them, maybe harder. Is also a parenting note. <laughs> man, oh man. <laughs> Man, oh man, I could talk for an hour on that. You almost, you almost sent me, like, sent me off on that. But I'm gonna not watch me do it. I'm not gonna not talk about that right now. It's way harder than talking about it. I mean, this whole book is just so full of amazing stuff. Yeah, the knot is something that was sort of interesting, especially because again, I started with sorcery, and so sorcery—that's the whole—that's the end of that one is you know is he's like what if what if we didn't you know what if equal rights too equal rights it's all through everything it's 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 and especially granny especially the witches that's what witches know and wizards don't Mm -hmm. is witches are like how about not (laughs) (laughs) um but for me what's interesting is i'm like oh this is that's sort of an interesting trope about power and the use of power. And that goes, I mean, take take a looky-loo at Tolkien, right? Um, like that is, that is, in my opinion, one of the o- overarching things that is constantly ignored in The Lord of the Rings is, and that's why Bom- Tom Bombadil is important. And when he's left out, it's a mistake. It's that, you know, all the way through you have the wise and and regular people slash evil. And the only difference between them is they all want power, but some of them are smart enough to know that they shouldn't take it. 
And that's what makes you wise, except there's one exception, and it's Tom Bombadil who does not desire. And even Gandalf acknowledges that he's like, man, I I would love to go hang out and smoke some weed with you in the Shire because I deserve a vacation. But I got to go talk to Tom right now because he um, – I long have I been a Rolling Stone and he is a gatherer of moss, I think he says. And he says – he and he's like he understands things. Tom didn't give a shit about the ring, and Gandalf fucking wanted it. He wanted it, and he knew better. But Tom, effectively, not that I think Tolkien studied Buddhism, Tom has shed the chains of desire, and therefore he cannot be corrupted, and he can have peace. And Gandalf knew he had to do stuff in the world. He doesn't know how to let go, and he's hoping to learn from Tom. So bringing that back here, you know, as a as a teacher, I always understood, oh, no, I can show you, and I'm making a mistake. As a, te- as a parent, you got to let him do it. You can't help. You should st- only help to a certain extent. Let him make mistakes. Let him learn. It's the hardest thing to watch your child fumble through something for for hours when you could tell them one thing or take their hand and and move it for them. And then suddenly it's done and done right. They, they don't need to know how to do it. They need how to learn how to do it. And they can only learn that by, by figuring it out. But I never made that connection in terms of the not towards parenting. And I always thought it was kind of a funny magical trope, almost like Lord of the Rings. I never thought of it in terms of education and learning until right now. Mm-hmm. The, the bit though that that I, I absolutely loved with Tiffany was uh, Tiffany accidentally heard them discussing it after she had gone to bed that night. It's quite easy to accidentally overhear people talking downstairs if you hold an upturned glass to the floorboards and accidentally <laughs> put your ear to it. It's such such eleven year old logic. It's scary. Yeah. Uh, can Can I share? Just if your people are into Pratchett stuff, can I share a weird story? Yeah. There used to be, and this is like, it's sort of like, a, it's a close to my heart thing because they used to do this thing, it was called a Fantasy Battle Royal or something, where some website got the idea of taking a bunch of popular fantasy characters, and then they would put them in brackets and do narrative head-to-head like combat. And they did a couple, and Foth was in one of the first ones, but I hadn't been published long and whatever. I did do a very good version of Quoth versus Aslan that I wrote up, which mm-hmm. I'm very proud of. And then I posted it and people were tickled by it. But about three years in, somebody had thrown in Falurian, um, which is a good pick because if, if you're thinking strictly in terms of like combat, mm-hmm. like Falurian is powerful in, in my books. But also, like there were uh, uh, all these other, all these other characters, and it had come down to, in one bracket, it was Neil Gaiman's death, and in the other bracket, it was Falurian versus Death's daughter, Susan. No, Susan, uh, granddaughter. Yeah, the the no, it's Susan. It's the one who's okay. the teacher, right? His his granddaughter, and so. Um, there, there was that matchup and I went, 
and I, I actually went online and I ranked it because it was just a popular vote as to who won. And I go, hey, everybody, I just figured out how I want to write this. If I if I win this, if Valerian wins in the vote, I'm going to pitch them that I'll write the closing fight. Because, and again, it was after Terry had just passed. And so over here, you have Susan, you know, this character from late in the series, uh, but also the daughter of death over here on the other side of the bracket. This was the finals is um, Neil Gaiman's death. And, and then here's Valerian, my weird fuck fairy. And, um, but so what I did is I went in because you could, they always invited the authors to come in and write a little scene describing how they think it would go. And I usually didn't, but sometimes I had a cool idea and I'd write a little scene. But I wrote one, first off, to explain how Fullerian and Susan came to a draw. And again, bringing two worlds, like two characters from different worlds into a scene and doing it, how they came to a draw and then went to meet death. And now it's also a little weird writing somebody else's character's as a professional author, because hmm. I never did fanfic back in the day. And now it's like, if I were to go in and do fanfic, it's rude to just, hey, I'm going to go splash about in your IP. Like, that's bad and weird and it feels rude. So I actually pinged Neil and I'm like, hey, come, there's this thing. I kind of want to do a thing. Is this, is this creepy and weird? And he's like, he's like, it's okay. He goes, it's okay with me. And so I wrote it. And so there was the scene with Fullerian and Susan and Neil Gaiman's death and Pratchett's death shows up too a little bit as, over the course of the scene. But I wrote that and it, I spent a lot of time on it, but it was sort of my love letter to Terry um, after he had gone to, you know, because it's, it's the, it's several deaths and it's one of them is his and He's just brought so much into my life. Um, and so that's, I don't even know if it's out there anymore. I don't know if that website exists, but but I wrote that. And I was kind of proud of it if anyone ever can find it and read it. Just an editor's note here. Yeah, we, we have lost Justin for the oh, night. Oh, okay. Uh, their internet just completely oh, no. cracked out. But I guess we should soldier on. Um I do want to talk a little bit about the Fiegels in this book because they continue to be the most delightful, like animal companion character for the, <laughs> uh, for the, the, the young protagonist, the, the, uh, what was the thing that you pulled on of the, the, uh, Oh, um, in the ebook, in the ebook, there's a little interview with Terry, which is quite lovely to read. Um, if you haven't done so. Um, and one of the notes in there he describes the Fiegels. Uh, I think I think it's like the the interview is like asking him to talk about like you know what the Fiegels mean to him or some sort of thing like that. Um, and his note is that he describes the Fiegels as tiny little Scottish Smurfs who have seen Braveheart altogether too many times, <laughs> and that's just charming because like that's that's great. I I really I really loved that description of the Fiegels. One of my favorite little bits too is in 
in the witch trials, there's this quote of a middle-aged witch demonstrated a new way to stop people from choking, which doesn't even sound magical until you understand that a way of turning nearly dead people into fully alive people is worth a dozen spells that go twing. <laughs> I've heard CPR also described like exactly that way as like, you know, in kind of in response to people who are like, oh, CPR, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't work on all the time, like in the movies. And it's like, well, with CPR, you're turning a person who is dead into a person who is alive. So like, if it works at all, that's kind of magic. <laughs> Yeah. And that that is full on actual witch magic in you know in within the context of of the the book too. Right. Um and I just I I really loved that particular line. Mm-hmm. Also awfully wee Billy is is uh is a is a a good a good boy. Yeah. The Gonagal the the whole Gonagal thing in this is just great. Uses words like swords. And as he as he chides the rest of the Feagles for their bad behavior, <laughs> yes, and they're all sobbing. Yes. Oh, and and Justin pinged a, a favorite thing that I'll also bring up is the the whole thing where Tiffany's talking to the Hiver about evolution, right? Mm-hmm. And the quote of well, "We are history. Everything we've ever been on the way to becoming us." Uh, we still are. I made up the memories of my parents and my grandparents, all my ancestors. They're in the way I look, the color of my hair, and I'm made up of everyone I've ever met who's changed the way I think. Which is just a lovely quote. It's funny, Pat, how you brought up Lin-Manuel Miranda, because this feels very much like Moana. <laughs> you know, the Feagles, I, I will say this, is as the second book, if any of you read the first book and you're like, Boy, that accent, though. Um, <laughs> as you know, which I, I think when I read it, whenever you write something, this is, uh, this is my own experience. I'm just speaking from my experience here. But when you write something, I always think, how much work is this going to be for my reader? And will they be adequately compensated for their work? Which sounds kind of mechanistic and whatever, but it's sort of like, I want, I want everything to be as easy as possible for my reader. And so that when it does need to be a little hard, they won't be worn out needlessly. You know, I want them to put some work in, in some places where I'm going to require their attention or I'm going to make them use their emotions or I'm going to make them use their brain or something will maybe be a little bit opaque. And I did, and I spent a long time, I put in a real, real humdinger of a not really an accent in name of the wind right at the end there's a swine herd that i spelt that accent phonetically and i would hate to ever try to do it out loud and i justified it by like i i can do this for two pages and if i do it for more than that i have failed everyone because it'll be novel for exactly that long and then i am making them pay too much to Mm. read this. And generally speaking, people are like, oh my God, right, that accent. And it's usually like people are aghast or amused or they remember it fondly, but nobody is ever like, I I just had to skip it Mm. because I kept it so short. I'll say what I remember, I remember the first book being way thicker in the jargon and the accent and all of that. This one 
either because Pratchett himself just backed away or because he had like he had it in his head enough that he just didn't refer to his extensive vocab list that he'd made during the first one and just kind of did it naturally. The language here is so much easier than in the first one mm-hmm. and the accent in, in my, in my, in my memory. Well, and comparing these Fiegels to the Fiegels in Carpe Jugulum, uh, oh. there it was even, it was even more of a brogue. Yeah. There, there, I almost want to say that was almost intent. It's like, if you want to sit down and do a cipher, then you can understand what they mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I lived for a year in in Scotland a long time ago, and some of the some of the outer islands, it theoretically was English. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this one I don't remember about we free men, but this one, uh, this one starts out with a fecal glossary. It does, yep. <laughs> and half of them are swears. Yep, my my boy is. Really, because uh, my my partner read the first one to them years ago. I think it maybe two years ago, and they were like they were just over the moon about the fecals. That was everything they wanted. Um, I will be reading them this second one pretty soon. We're going to read the uh, last unicorn first, but mm. um, uh, but after that, I think maybe we'll jump back. We'll jump into Pratchett. The Stephen Briggs audiobooks of this are spectacular as well. Uh, mm. We listened to them on some long road trips um, last year, and his his Fiegel, it, um dialect is spectacular. Uh, my younger one was going, "Oh, Whaley, Whaley, Whaley!" <laughs> oh, Whaley, Whaley! <laughs> I, I remember my littler was like Crivens, and I'm like, "You can say Crivens all you want, my sweet lad." <laughs> and uh, in this one, the Fiegels have less page space too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They do stuff, but there's not long conversations. Yeah, for, that they're, except for Jeannie and Rob, which is a very great is a very good scene. Yeah, they're in fairly limit a fairly limited number of scenes. Unlike mm-hmm. in We Free Men, they're in almost every scene. Yeah, they were the main character as much as Tiffany. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, and the thing is, I like Fiegel's as seasoning, mm-hmm. but also recognizing the craft. They they are strong. They can beat anyone up. They can solve any problem. So you kind of, as the writer, you have to shuffle them off a bit, or your story doesn't work. And it's hard. It's hard to effectively wharf affect them too. Wharf effect. Go give them somebody that beats them up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'd never heard that term, but I knew exactly what you meant. Wharf is only there so that people can hit him and knock him down to prove how tough they are. Right. <laughs> Speaking of the Fiegels, though, one thing that uh, I, I really enjoyed that Rob says uh, is, I never break my word yet except to policemen and other the kidney again, and they didn't count, which uh, I guess the Fiegels say all cops are bastards. Yep. <laughs> Boy, that has a different context now than when I read it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Phew. Oh, and then, you know, we have to talk about Oswald. Oswald. Oh. The anti the, the anti um, the poltergeist i i love the moment where miss level is like well i guess we're gonna have to figure out how to do the dishes (laughs) yeah yeah and that moment of joy when the salt and the pepper unsort themselves and they're like oswald's back yeah and also i love that 
like mixing the salt and the sugar is like the trick that they've developed to keep Oswald Gosh. busy so that he's not constantly tidying up <laughs> while they're while they're you know doing things that are you know have mess to them. Yeah. I mean there's so much to love in this book. And there's a lot of there's a lot of other like tie-ins with Discworld, like the other mm-hmm. parts of the disc. So we've we've talked about a lot of the stuff with you know relative to how granny is portrayed in the other books um we've also like a lot of the young witches are kind of magrat like too mm-hmm. you know with the you know liking the charms and the kind of like aesthetic of occultness one thing that i failed to know until um actually prepping for this episode is that several of the characters in this book are this isn't their first appearance. They actually appear in a short story, The Sea and Little Fishes, uh, including Mrs. Earwig or Awige, uh, I guess it's pronounced. Um, it's like, it's and, like and tea the witch time. Trials, right. And, and the witch trials are also established in that short story. Interesting. I think I think I, I stumbled onto that ages ago. Like it was a link on the Wikipedia page to the online story that I don't know if it's ever been like in an anthology that I saw, that's where I, if that's the same story I'm thinking about. Um, now I see here, there's some talk you, you said, you, you know, uh, I, I would, I would dig into this. Uh, Anna, Anna, anagramma. I want to call her anagrammata, but, mm-hmm. but it's Anna, anagram, anagramma. Yeah. Is that a palindrome? No, not quite. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to dig into this a little bit. Oh yeah. Um, my, my wife and I had a long discussion about this after, uh, after I read it again recently, I really felt like anagramma came off as a, as a mean girl. Um, and she, she disagreed with me. And I think that, I think, I don't know, is, is she a bully? Is she not quite a fully developed bully yet? What, I feel what like she's on, she's on the, the precipice of, like she, she's at the peak and she could go either way. Hmm. Because she strikes me at least as somebody who is pretty deeply unself-aware and unaware of like the fact that other people are people and have oh, which is a cardinal sin in Terry's books well it it also makes you a straight up sociopath which right. it goes far beyond bully to be clear right but but like but it's also a, it's also a you know a thing with growing up that you have to like there empathy is learned to a certain extent you have to develop theory of mind right and and it it seems like, you know, she's at that point where, like, she's got a forceful personality and um, opinions, et cetera, and is, like, has not quite under does not quite understand that what she's doing is cruel. Hmm. But that doesn't mean that what she's doing isn't cruel. Mm-hmm. Like, that she's, she's, a, she's a bully, but I don't, I don't think that she's intentionally cruel Hmm. that's that's my read on her at least that and i say this as somebody who perhaps has some anagramma traits and you know in the in the thing of like teaching yourself 
empathy is important and like you know maybe anagramma isn't as good at filtering her darker inner thoughts i i think she is a she is a very as with almost across the board with terry a very good realistic true feeling character yeah um for for con i was going to say this as a joke but i i don't think i'm going to i'm not going to do it with a straight face i was going to say cuz aaron you said you know i thought that she was a mean girl but my wife didn't i was going to say well context is important is your wife a mean girl oh god no and so uh, because if you uh, like that would explain it if your wife was mean and she's like no it's fine and i'm like well no, she's, but that, she's that- a teacher who worked with adolescents Oh, okay. So, she, oh no, that just means that she's like, that's like asking a cook, is this pot hot? <laughs> um, it doesn't mean it's not hot. It means that they're used to holding hot pots. Right. That actually is really useful context. Is she mean? Yes. Period. Does she bully? <laughs> yes. Period. Is she abusive? Yes. Period. Are there reasons for this? Sure. Uh, but, ooh, I, I'm so sorry to take it into Tolkien again. But this is, you know, I, I read The Hobbit. I've read The Hobbit to my boys a couple of times. And every time there's something interesting there to talk about. And the most recent time, we got to the end where the, the dwarves are uh, making their stand in the in the mountain. And... You know, and they're and all the people from Lake Town come up, and they're like, they're like, "Hey, what up? You're uh, why why is it like this?" And and the dwarves are like, "You can, we're cool. Thanks for thanks for coming, but leave." And they're like, "Well, we we kind of killed a dragon," and uh, and the dwarves are like, "How about you entirely go fuck yourselves <laughs> and just get get out of here in every conceivable way." And it, what's interesting is Tolkien, in my opinion, makes makes an understandable but not good mistake, um, uh, forgivable but truly unfortunate. He talks about the dragon sickness. Um, he says there is a power that dragons treasure um, possesses, especially treasure possesses, especially a treasure that a dragon has brooded over for a long time that when people encounter it, they covet it. And this can lead to people having it. And dwarves are kind of predisposed towards being capable, like susceptible to this dragon sickness. And somebody once before name of the wind was published said to me, boy, Hey, this really bad stuff happens to Quoth. And then he goes and he spends all this time in the city and I'm just so irritated. Like, he's smart. He's capable. Why doesn't he just fix? His, why doesn't he just take his, pull himself up by his bootstraps and, like, make money and just fix his situation? And I'm like, and 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 then they say, what if, what if when this bad thing happens, somebody casts a spell on him and that's what means that he can't do it? That's, that's why he can't, like, get off the streets as a beggar, you know? And, and I say, and and I didn't say anything because luckily that person wasn't my editor, so I didn't have to give them a reason. <laughs> but that is the like that's also a little microcosm of what happens a thousand times a day in Hollywood. Is somebody saying, "Yeah, sure, that might be how people <laughs> act," but how can we make sure that nobody misses the point? 
you know? And similarly, I, I got to leave it alone because, yeah, sometimes just being a mess forever is the result of something really bad happening. And magic, you don't need magic to explain that. That's how humans are. And reading books about people is how we learn how people do. And I don't want to slap a cheap coat of paint over that and say, ah, eh, magic reasons. Mm-hmm. That's a cop-out. And it's a disservice to to my readers who are smart. And in Tolkien, he does that with dragon sickness, whereas the truth is sometimes, and and I stopped and I'm like, how do we feel about how Thorin is behaving here? Because he says, I'm not saying I won't give you anything, but I'm saying you brought an army here. So you leave now or you can starve to death. And I will, I'll be, and I will sleep well tonight. And then we, and we, and I stop and I say, how do we feel about Thorin here? And, and they're like, one of my boys says, he's being a real donk. And I'm like, yeah, it really is. And I'm like, why do you think? And, and we're kind of quiet for a while because something occurred to me. And then I said, think of Thorin's life when he was a child, this was his home and all of his friends and all of his family lived here and smog came And all of them were killed and his home was lost and he had to leave and he had nothing and he was poor for a long time and he never had a home and he didn't have those friends and he didn't have that family. And now finally he's worked his whole life, hundreds of years, and he's back and smog is gone and he has the mountain and the treasure and he's been poor for so long and he was scared for so long and he's wanted this for so long. And I go, what does that feel like to you, boys? And again, because I kind of trained him up, my older one says, well, that's trauma. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah. And I go, I think Thorin is real scared here. And and I go, "And, and, and, and I didn't even need to prompt my younger. And he goes, and when you're scared, you make stupid decisions. And I'm like, that's right. And when you're traumatized, that means you're a little scared all the time and it makes it hard to make good decisions all the time. And I'm like, but what else? And my older boy goes, but he's still responsible for his actions. And I'm like, and I'm like, I've never been prouder of them. And I'm not saying I didn't prepare them for that, but I realized it for the first time doing that read through. That's like Thorne has absolute legit psychological reasons for doing exactly what he does. Mm -hmm. Exactly what he does because this dude has had a rough fucking life, you know, dwarf privilege aside, right? And so here, now I come to Anagramma. And I'm not saying that she is not deeply scared inside because she worries that she is an empty shell and that nobody really likes her she is still responsible for her actions and hurt people hurt people. And the one thing that has happened, I think I'm mostly the same as a dad as I was before, because I came to it late. The thing that I do seem to be continuously developing it, what I'm, and what I'm learning to, to feel and not feel bad about feeling my pendulum is swinging back. So where I'm like, if you, if you are bad to people, I am sorry for the things that have led you to this place, but you are not excused. Now, and, and, and I'm not closing the door on her, 
But Tiffany is a better person than I am by giving her a road out. And because of Tiffany, Anagramma now has a road to become a person who does not hurt everyone she touches. Whether or not she takes it will say a lot about her. Yeah. That's what I was meaning with saying that like she's at the she's at the precipice where like she could either dig in or learn. But but going back to the kind of specifically mean girl, the distinction in my mind would be that I feel like to be a mean girl, you have to be cognizant Mm. of your own cruelty and be cruel for the sake of being cruel to at least some extent that. you know, that that I think is part of the the whole mean girl thing is that you know you're you're not just you're not just lashing out or being cruel you're doing it because for the sake of it and see that's what I that's what I where I got that because you know the entire first scene where she where Tiffany's meeting all of the other witches in training anagramma is you know browbeating and manipulating people uh, to, to do things that she wants, which feels very, I don't know if we'd still use this term, but very queen bee ish. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I never was a, a middle school girl, so I can't comment specifically, <laughs> but you know, observing from afar, but she's, um, but she's not, she doesn't seem invested in the results of her cruelty hmm. that, you know, she's, she's being, she's being cruel to all the other girls, but it's sort of like it's coming from, you know, potentially insecurity or wanting to be in charge and thinking that there's a way that things should be done and and like, you know, not not being self-aware that like you can't be in charge in that way and control other people in that way. Um mm. but like the way that she kind of like flits from person to person and it's it's very offhand that she's not like she doesn't she doesn't seem focused on like you know watching the ant under the <laughs> under the magnifying glass you know that it's it's scattershot this and and I love Terry this is a little simplistic you know where Tiffany gives her an out and it's like guess what I'm going to make it so you don't have to admit that you're shitty and that you have done bad things because, I mean, boy, thinking back on that, what a huge disservice to Anagramma. It's like, you're an idiot. You can't admit that you're wrong. You can't learn. So I'm going to give you the easy road. You don't even have to cop to your bullshit. Oh, I'm angry now. I'm angry. This is bad. Terry fucked this up. I'm angry. This is bad. I'm going to I'm plant my flag. <laughs> Um, whoo, whoa, I'm like, whoo, I'm, I'm having emotions. <laughs> I'm going to have to read it again and see if I'm really salty or if I'm bringing too much into this in my own life. And now here, here I come. I'm going to argue the other side. I was given so much benefit of the doubt as a kid. I was a little jackass. I was a naughty kid. I was a, a moderate, gentle vandal. I was a rule breaker. Brought a knife to school. Like these days... Like, I brought a knife to school as a joke, and it was a funny joke. And the principal had me into his office. He's like, what were you doing? And he's like, I'm taking this. I'm not giving it back. You can take it home at the end of the day. Don't ever do this again. And I'm like, and that was kind. 
that was kind because I wasn't bad. And I didn't do anything scary. I didn't threaten anyone. It didn't, it wasn't like that. It was literally, it was a very funny joke. Trust me. And now I look back on that within three years of me leaving that high school, they had metal detectors, like, because they were worried about people shooting each other. And, and I'm like, how lucky am I that I was given the benefit of the doubt? And I feel like we always should, we should give kids all the chances they need, all the support they need. So that hopefully they don't need so many chances. Oh, man, I'm super conflicted about this. Maybe I <laughs> and I'll I'll tie this to something that is a thread in a lot of Terry books, which is sometimes it's good to let people save face. Hmm. Yeah. That I think by by giving by giving Anagramma that out, you Tiffany's letting her save face and you know, there's and there's pros and cons to that. Yeah. And yeah. and I I know that personally my failing uh because it's kind of how I was brought up is and and I do it it is a mistake and it's something I had to radically adjust in my parenting when I realized I wasn't being kind to my boys. But part of me does feel like if you make a mistake, part of you learning is you admit it. You you like live in that. Like feel bad cuz you 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 did bad. Feel bad. And then move from there, which that's not healthy. That's not forgiveness. That's not kindness. Like assuming that somebody can only learn if they feel shame first. No, that's wrong. I don't agree with that. But that's sort of baked into my crust. That's part of this Germanic Midwestern, you know, Lutheran. It's not Catholic guilt. It's like Lutheran Midwestern Germanic, like people are bad but bring in the crops or you starve in the winter sort of mentality. I'm going to bring this one further level out though. Um, yeah. The, you know, I think Anna mentioned early on that Pachulia had a bit of a migrant vibe and thinking about how Nanny Og treats her, the, the women in her family, it's basically oh. grandma. Yeah. She's, she's, she's all a, the witches are tyrants. Yeah. She's a petty dictator. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll say this. I think I don't think the 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 pig witch who's na- I'm so bad with names, she strikes me as a young nanny og. Tiffany's the young granny, and all the other are sort of magrets. Hmm. I think most people who think they're witches are magrets. Magret's not a witch. She doesn't stick around. She's she does her best. Her best isn't very good. It's sort of like honestly, it's teachers. There are people who are called to teach. And then there are people who go, you know what? Teachers get insurance and it's a job that will exist in the world always. And then they decide to become a teacher. And the thing is the people who decide to be a teacher because it has health insurance, they tend to come in. They're a, they're a pretty, pretty okay teacher, sometimes a pretty good teacher, and they do it for 20 years, and it's okay, and they go home, and they drink a beer, and they never think about it. The people who care, who are called, they're amazing teachers who do burn out because they can't not care. And I think there's there's another factor of this with the witches Magrat wants to be, but just isn't suited to it. And so she she serves serves some time and then she's on her way out. Whereas Granny, Nanny, some of the like they they have 
whatever this quality is where they do stick to it, mm -hmm. which you might even just say, what is the commonality? The recognition of civic duty. That That's what makes you a witch is that it's not so much you, you're a witch, even if you don't acknowledge you're a witch, you're the, the shepherdess, you know, you're, you're, you're Tiffany's grandma. She's a witch. She she would probably never admit it herself, but of course she is because she's caring for everyone. Yeah. That's the defining characteristic of a witch. And even more than that, one of the things that stuck with me from this was the conversation between Tiffany and Miss Level about Granny Aching. And, you know, Tiffany's like, well, you know, I never saw her doing things. She was always <laughs> up on the hills. Uh, and level prods her a little bit and she finally admits, you know, that everybody did things for each other because they knew that great Aiken would want them to. And Miss Level's like, I could never aspire to that level of witchery. Oh, a next level witch. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'll, I'll also, the, something that I, I, I did want to bring up before we kind of hit, hit the end. You said, this is something that's a common theme. In my opinion, there's so much good in Terry's stuff, but the thing that always happens, and some people say, oh, like you have a motif in your writing or you a recurring theme, or some people say if you're a, a, a mono, monomaniac, like you always have a thing at the heart of your art. The thing that I have seen all the way through is in the very early books, it, it's like, here's a bar. And it's like, here's kind of a stereotypical trope. And you have a bouncer, and the bouncer's a troll, except they're a splatter. And it's like, ha-ha. But also, he's a thug, and he's an idiot, and uh, and he's a tough. And then a couple of books go by, and you learn that trolls are actually, there's a lot going on there. And they're up in the mountains, and the cool, and, and whatever. And then, and you're like, it turns out that it seems like this. But actually, they're they're just people, but they're different than some other people. And then you learn about dwarves and it's like, oh, they're fucking, they're, you know, they're cussed and they get into fights and whatever. And then they, they were never really cast as baddies, but they were sort of tr a troublesome caricature. And, but then you learn that actually, no, oh, it turns out who'd thought they're, they're actually just people. It's just that they're different people than other people. And then goblins and then orcs and then wizards and then sorcerers and then witches and then vampires and then everyone who you thought was an other is not yeah yeah everyone is a person everyone is a person everyone you thought was bad you did not understand what they really were because they're a person and i will say if there is one lesson that you wanted to keep hammering hard on that bell in everything you ever do throughout your life. What a great one to ring endlessly, hopefully into the heart and mind of man is the fact that no, they're all people. Everyone's a person. You might not understand them, but they're people and it's okay that they don't do it like you do it. In my opinion, and Terry has done so much that was amazing, but that is the star on his crown mm -hmm. is that that is at the heart of everything he wrote is that the people you thought were bad are not, they, they are not. And that means he, 
is a better person than me because I do assume the worst and I, I do carry a grudge and, and, and I, and I wish I were better. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not, I, I hope to be, um, that's, but I, I will say if, if I, if, if I got to, if I got to meet him one more time, I would say, I don't know if you did it on purpose, but you did it. And like, thank you. Thank you for, for bringing the world something that it needs to learn and helping people learn that. Yeah. Watching the, the fascinating thing about this project is, you know, just reading, watching an author of his caliber develop over 30 years, right. You know, book after book where he's like, you know, no, I can do that better. No, I can really do that better. Oh, Hey, there's one thing that I said in an offhanded comment here. I'm going to write an entire book about it. I'm going to fix that because that was a little shitty. Right. Yep. Yep. It it also in, in context of that, I think it was Neil, and boy, I, I hate to sort of quote somebody about somebody important <laughs> like this, but I'm not quoting. I, th- But I think there was an interview where somebody said, like, Pratchett always was so happy and so hopeful. That's and a I great think, article. That's a really yeah, good article. And Gaiman said, oh, no, I remember Terry is always angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like... Oh, thank God. Like, maybe I can be good like Terry because I'm always so angry. I, there's, there is a word for it. It's called Weltschmerz. Hmm. It's, it's, it's anger that the world is not as it should be. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned that term and I'm like, there's a word for how I feel all the time. And, and I'm like, it doesn't help too much, but it helps a little knowing that, Somebody that I admire struggled with this feeling too. <sighs> but yeah, that is a great article. There's a few fun other like oh, yeah. Discworld references that I wanted to call out, which is for one thing, when they look through a tel- they talk about looking through a telescope and seeing the dragons on the moon, which is fun. Yeah. Right. But the other thing of it's all stories, really. The sun coming up every day is a story. Everything's got a story in it. Change the story, change the world. is got big Hogfather vibes. Yeah. It's all narrativium. Yeah. That, that hits me where I live. God, we could talk about so many more things. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I think we've, I think we've uh, probably hit our time limit here. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming on, you know, the hearing, hearing other authors talk about Terry's work and, you know, how they see it is really a fascinating part of this project to me. Um, it's, he's, there's, there's nobody like, nobody, nobody like him. Nobody does what he does. Um, yeah. Yeah, huge part of my development. I just could not admire him more. And I, and he could not be more of a different author from me, which means what he does is magic. Um, I could can't even dream of doing what, what Terry did. So let's do our ratings. Justin gave it six out of seven cracked shambles. A whole barrow's worth of gold coins. Um, I will rate this as one out of one kindness which i have strong feelings about assessment and rubric uh so uh what is what i will say is i always feel like things should either be yes no or eh. uh so 
This is a 100%, one out of one, absolutely. Do a kindness to yourself and read it. Uh, and I give it 33 out of 35 Fiegels, Nascarco Mecca. I love that. Uh, and with that, uh, we say goodbye for a few weeks before we return to um, Monstrous Regiment. Apologies, listeners, for the confusion. And then after that, going postal. Monstrous Regiment. It's. I, I think it might be my straight up favorite one, and I. I. It, but it's so standalone. Mm-hmm. I just. I love it so much. It's so good. It's a sneaky backdoor Vimes book. Yeah. Yeah. Ex- <laughs> backdoor Vimes. Mm, that sounds bad. Uh, maybe maybe so, not so. where Venari is concerned. That's true. <laughs> Ooh, spicy. <laughs> There's my fanfic. Write that for charity. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the fair use doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution non-commercial no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it. Don't make money off it. And don't change it. Connect with the show at the Tuin Pod, which is A T U I N underscore P O D. Or email us at the Tuin.pod 